We have a prayer room here in our church. Each Sunday, um, at some point, there are people who pray, and about every six weeks in our church, uh, many of you are familiar with the fact that there's an insert in the bulletin um, where you have a chance to write down some of the concerns you have or your thanksgivings and your praises. And those things are prayed for. They're taken right across the hallway and they're put in, in a room over there. And they're prayed for. And we, we do it for a few reasons. One is because prayer is effective and God hears and He answers prayer. So we pray fundamentally because we bring these things to the Lord. Uh, but there's a few other reasons, secondary reasons we do it. Um, there's people in our church who have a heart for prayer and uh, we want to celebrate that. We also want to echo... Uh, kind of the call to pray. Every time you fill one of these things out, I hope somewhere in your mind is, I should be praying more. Uh, and so we do that. And, and it's amazing what some of you write. Um, I want to tell you about one of them. Uh, about a month ago, uh, it was an anonymous one that actually arrived in the mail. And uh, it was hopeless. It is hopeless. And I don't know who it is. I've, I cannot figure it out. I know you, and I can't figure it out. But it's hopeless, and it's desperate. And it is a person who is in great need. And uh, we've, we've tried what we know to do. We've prayed. We've prayed with my wife, with Pastor Terry, with the deacons. Certainly the prayer team has been in prayer. Um, And I, I figure you're not alone. In a church this size, nobody's ever alone. There's nothing you're experiencing. There's nobody here who's the solitary experiencer of, of a thing. We're just too big of a community. And so it's just been on my heart to assume, I guess the person's not alone. You know, there's these times we have big plans in our life. There's these the planning phases where we think there's ways that things are going to turn out. Uh, we have hopes about how they're going to turn out. And then there is that turning phase in life where you realize things will not be as you'd planned or hoped, and sometimes it's a lot worse. You're broke. You know, you're hopeless. Your marriage didn't turn out like you wanted it to. Your job hasn't panned out. Maybe you don't have a job. You're scared or you're insecure. I, I hope that God's word is for you today. That's my hope. And um, I assume that you're, you're not alone. So if you would... Uh, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. This is a brief account we're going to be looking at, starting in verse 13. It's a brief, I, I think it's an interesting account. It is. Um, it has a lot of irony in it. This is an occasion where Joseph is saving Jesus' life. That's just, it's ironic to me. Um, now, our reading this morning is going to start with a phrase, when they had gone. When they had gone is what the reading starts with. And the when they had gone is referring to the Magi. So the Magi have just visited Mary and the child. And it says, when they had gone. And... And I, I got to thinking um, in the preparation for this, what might it have been like in the moments after the Magi had left? You know, there's no mention, by the way, that the Magi visited with Joseph. They, they sought out the woman and the child. But 
But I was just thinking, after they had gone, you know, if Joseph walks in the door from work, you know, says hi to his wife, gives her a kiss, asks what's for dinner. Wife says, guess who came by today? You know, what, the tax collectors again? You know, I, I don't know what he'd say, but no, there are magi from the east bearing gifts from afar. And, and what must have been their experience? I mean, their parents, their parents, their tradesmen, working class, broke, poor kind of people. And on the dinner table is gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I mean, these, these gifts, just Jesus didn't use them. He's an infant. I can just imagine kind of the, uh, that evening. I mean, if that had happened to me, if my, you know, if we were working class and, and the gifts that are suitable for a king were presented to us, that would be a fun evening of imagining. You know, I, my son's college would be paid for. My sons and daughters' colleges would be paid for. But in Joseph's case, you know, the college fund's taken care of. Set up a 529 for Jesus. And, uh, you know, if it, I don't know how much it is, but maybe a, a, a house on uh, the Sea of Galilee for the summer. The donkey's out of here. You know, you just think, no more donkey. These, you know, these gifts, I just can't imagine them not being, it not being a significant evening. Of imagining, it's a thinking. Maybe Mary and Joseph, for one of their first times, are thinking this is a bonus to be the parents of a king. The blessings of being the parents of God. That must have it. Must have felt it. Must have felt good to be the beneficiaries of his kingship. But this is what is written in verse thirteen: When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died... An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. The angel says to Joseph, take the child and his mother and go to Egypt. And I just have to think, if um, it must have been, 
says, when they had gone, he has a dream. I almost wonder if it's the same, if it's that evening that this is taking place. The Magi visit, they leave gifts. As I assume, there must have been some level of rejoicing in the household for these these gifts and for these, these warm thoughts. And then that night, that night, everything is turned on its head. Whatever, whatever kind of peace or joy or the, the thoughts of being the benefits of being the parents of a king must be immediately turned on its head with an angel saying, get up, go. In fact, he leaves that night. There must be some urgency there. He says he gets up that night and they set off that night for Egypt. Imagine the role reversal here. Imagine the dreams you might have had about what you're going to do, what you're going to buy, what you're going to be, who your son's going to be, all of these things. And the next thing you know, you're back on that donkey at night on the way to Egypt. Now, I mean, I'm a traveler, and that makes me nervous and lonely. And this is where you begin to think things like, well, why couldn't he just go, why couldn't they go to Aunt Elizabeth's house? You know? I really, I mean, Herod's edict only extended to Bethlehem and the surrounding vicinity. Why not Elizabeth's house? Why not back to Nazareth? Why couldn't they go there? They end up there anyway. But get up and go to Egypt. I wonder if they spent all their money relocating. These things give us questions. You know, I have questions. Here's a few true or false ones. Just true or false. The child in the arms of Mary, the child placed in the stewardship of Joseph, is the son of God. True. Right? True or false. The infant is going to be the salvation of all mankind. That this child is the most important person who has ever or will ever be born. True. True or false. This is not a little story the birth of Christ or the story of Christ. This isn't a side dish to the story of God like the donkey that speaks or the hand that writes on the wall. This isn't a small story. This is the main story. This is the story of God, that the life of Jesus, his ministry, his words, and his actions are absolutely central to what it means for us to claim hope in salvation. True or false? True. Then why doesn't God show up? I mean, show up powerfully. Couldn't he just have killed Herod? You know, Herod dies not long after he massacres Bethlehem. He's almost, he's in the last years of his life as it is. Well, if, if, this is, if Jesus is so significant, if he's God for crying out loud, if I was Joseph... I'd say, why am I hauling this child to Egypt if he's God? I mean, the Lord puts a pillar of fire to protect the Jewish people, gives them manna, he parts the seas, he stops the sun in the sky, he does all of these things for them, and for the Son of God, he says to the steward, the father figure, get up and run, go. If I were Joseph, I'd be confused. I'd feel like God holds all the cards. God shuffles the deck. God deals them out. Like, how do I come up with twos and threes? Like, 
Can't God just deal it my way? This is how life turns. This is how it can be for us. And maybe this is your life. You're with Christ. You had plans. Things have turned. You don't know why they've turned. But in your mind, you know, God is real. I believe God's significant. But he's never done anything like this for me. He's never dealt me a decent hand. Or you find yourself in a position where you're behind the eight ball. Or you're without hope. Or all of the, the variables of life are tying in. And this is Christmas is one of these times when people sometimes feel their loneliness or lost most keenly. And you feel like, how is it that I got dealt this hand if, in fact, my God is this big? It feels maybe like you actually have this tiny God and you're running to Egypt. Like God could fit in the palm of your hand. Some people feel like they're being hunted down or maybe it's financial debt. Is that your problem? Maybe it's, maybe it's your mortality. Maybe you thought you had a lot more years left in you and you come to find out you don't. I know people who go on vacation and come back in a wheelchair. Talk about turn your world upside down. Maybe you just don't feel safe. This is the irony of it all. You're with Christ. He's the Savior. He's salvation. He's the possessor of all wealth and all power on the universe. If you feel insecure or you feel persecuted or you're running away, you know that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. Like Think, Jesus, think about in Joseph's mind. He's running from Herod with the King of Kings. If you are broke or you're about to declare bankruptcy or lose your house or your wife's going to leave you because... She, She's going to find out what a disaster you are with your bank account or whatever it is. The irony is, is that you look across into the scriptures and see that Jesus has cattle on a thousand hills. He has everything. If you're dying an untimely death, if you're terminal, you know that Jesus is the great physician. But he's not showing up. And let's just assume, right? He is not going to heal you. He's not going to drop a bag of money in your lap. It isn't that he can't. It's that he will not. He may let you get run down by King Herod. I mean, this is this, this, Matthew puts the story in the front of his gospel. This is what's so strange. Matthew's the only one who even allows this little window, this idea of mankind saving Jesus, saving God, and running away with him. Matthew puts it right in the front, and it, it, it sits next to these other themes that have been coming through Matthew. So Matthew up front wants you to know that this is a king. We've, we've called this series the Perusia because it's the arrival of a king. And all of these themes have kind of a, a kingship theme. Even Herod is hunting down the Christ child because the child is a king. 
In the first week, we looked at the lineages and the genealogies and the birth story, and we said that what we do know is that Jesus is God with us. That's who he is. He's God with us. He's more than just a man king. He's a God king. He is a genealogy that comes from David, yes, but he has a genealogy, a greater genealogy, that comes through the Holy Spirit from God himself. He is God with us. And then the second week, we looked at what it meant to the Magi coming, and we said Jesus is altogether something more, that his kingship is more than an earthly kingship, that the Magi recognized that. They didn't bring him gifts as they simply would a king. They brought him gifts. They fell down, and they worshipped him. And they, they came and worshipped a king whose dominion somehow reached all the way out into the Orient and grabbed them. He's something altogether more. This week, what we see is that he's altogether different. That his kingship is not the kind of kingship that you and I expect or that we want or that matches our estimation of what a king is going to do for his people. He doesn't seem to free us from the troubles of life. If you're here, right, and you're enmeshed in the troubles of life, I can't with empirical data tell you that our king is going to come and bail you out. He's God with us in trouble. In fact, there's times I feel that the gospel can feel weak or insufficient for us. I mean, you confess Christ, but you feel like you're sneaking out of town under the cover of night with him in your arms. You're so big and God is so small You feel hard-pressed on every side. You feel perplexed. You feel persecuted. You feel struck down. This phrase, you have God in your arms and you're running. uh... And here's the strange thing. The strange thing is, is that God talks all the time about saving us, about rescue, about accounting for a debt, about healing us. He does it all the time. Come to me, you who are weary, and I will give you rest. He says that. His first sermon, he stands up in the synagogue and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. To announce what? Freedom for the captives. Sight for the blind. Good news to the poor. He says that. The year of the Lord's favor. And yet, what is he doing all this time? You're hard-pressed, you're perplexed, you're persecuted, and you're struck down. And you look to Jesus and he says, I'm not that kind of king. So what kind of king is he? There's two things I want to say this morning. There's two things that I think typify the God we worship. The God we worship in and out of trouble. This is the first one. That this God, this this Christ, is concerned about the best version of yourself. He's not concerned about your interests. He's concerned about your best interests. He's concerned about making you the person who you ought to be. About improving you. About changing you from who you were to who you ought to be. And that hurts sometimes. 
Sometimes you feel hard-pressed because the Lord is stretching and growing you. Sometimes you feel perplexed because he's teaching you. Or you feel persecuted because he's refining you. Or you feel struck down because he's humbling you. But God behaves in such a way as to take you from who you were and make you something you ought to be, someone you ought to be. And for us sometimes, that's frustrating. Like a good parent, a good parent does this to their children. We perplex our children because we love our children. We persecute our children because we love our children. We press hard on them. Some of you are caught by the debts or the lack of health or the fear or the insecurity and you would assume, if you were given the right to choose, you'd say, Lord, solve the physical problems of my life instead of improving who I am. But the Lord's going to make you who you ought to be. And that can at times feel hopeless. I'll also say this. To what degree is your situation, and I'm speaking specifically to that person, to what degree is your situation the result of poor decisions and sin of you, your family, or your community? Let's be careful what we place on the shoulders of God. You know, this story, very little said about Joseph or, or about any of this. But I'll give you a what if. So if this account, if, if you know, Take the child, take the mother, and go. Go to Egypt. I know you don't have family in Egypt. I know you have to go find a new job, a new house, establish a new reputation. You don't know how long you'll be there. You don't know who you're going to meet when you get there. But go. Just go. Because Herod is on your trail. On the way there, you know, if what is God doing? I imagine God's doing something for the family of Joseph, Jesus, and Mary. You know, and it's interesting. When you read the text, you know who you find ambiguously missing from all the celebrations? It's Joseph. Joseph's not mentioned with the Magi. Shepherds show up to see who? Jesus and Mary. And I, thought, I, I just think, this is total what if. But what if the whole reason that God decided, I'm going to send him to Egypt, is to make Joseph a valuable part of this family? He's on the outside. It's not his kid. It's not his story. Magi didn't show up to give him anything. I just wonder. I wonder if this trip is God's way of saying, Joseph, we need you. They need you. You're a dad. You're a father. Be the man who you ought to be. Isn't that enough? In the great scheme of things, if your troubles in life is simply so that God would say to you, be the husband you're supposed to be, be the wife I know you can be. Be the student you should be. Isn't that enough? God is concerned with the best version of ourselves, and this feels hard. And he allows the circumstances of this world to signal failure around us and oppression on us in order that we might become who he wants us to be. That's the first thing. And this is the second thing that I know, and this is harder, but it's better, is God ultimately has God in mind. God's first interest is, is his, his name, his reputation, and what he's doing. Which means that in our lives, 
God is turning the story around so as to be a bountiful witness of himself. When you take Jesus Christ as yours, when you say, I am a follower of God, what you are saying to the Lord is, Lord, I now subject my life to tell your story. Whatever you want to do, do through me so that your name may be made great. And our God is not the kind of king who sits on his throne aloof from the hurts and the pains of this world. He got down and he went into it. He went to the places that you and I won't even go. He went down to people and to darkness and to broken things to redeem those things which were lost and broken and hurting. Do you not think that he will take you there also? He's got to do it. That's the kind of king he is. He's the kind of king who looks for the least of his subjects and leaves the 99 and goes and finds them. And if you claim Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he will eventually take you to an uncomfortable place because he wants to make his name great in dark places. If you're sitting here and you're on the verge of bankruptcy, do you not think that there are lost and broken, hurting people who don't know Jesus who are on the verge of bankruptcy? Who need to see somebody with a Christian spirit that says, despite my circumstances, I have peace and joy because of the Lord who's in me. Does the Lord have the right to celebrate his name among the hurting? You are the ambassadors to a painful world. See, we as Christians, we want to make our lives ideal. We want our lives to be sanitized, which is not a witness to who Christ is reaching. The Lord is determined to make his name great, and he does it by taking his people to difficult places. Look at Peter. Look at Stephen. Look at Paul. Look at Philip. Look at Christ. Did any of them have a sanitized life of comfort? And so you, you, in your hardship, do not think that the Lord is not weaving a story that makes his name great. To the barren woman in this group, do not think that the Lord does not have in his mind, I will make my name great through you. To the person who can't hold a job, do not think that the Lord is not thinking, I am about to make my name great. I will do something in your life that will make the ears of the people around you tingle when they hear it. Have we not bared witness to this before among our own community? God has the right to celebrate himself through your life. That's what it means to follow Jesus, for you to deny yourself Take up his cross and follow him. So what then is our hope in the physical world? If he's a different kind of king who's going to allow us to suffer illness because the fallen suffer illness and to suffer hardship because the fallen suffer hardship and to suffer financial ruin because the the fallen suffer financial ruin. What is our hope? And I would say this. He's the God with us who is altogether more. He has not abandoned you. He hasn't left you. 
He's with you. I mean, the irony is Joseph and Mary are running to Egypt is that God is with them physically. He's with them. He is our hope. We are in his eternal mind. Right? We have an eternal personage to the Lord. He's making us who we ought to be, who we eventually will be for eternity. And we warrant some tough times for that. This is what is said about, about us. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. That's what Paul says. He says, I'm a clay jar. I'm a jar that gets thrown down and broken, if need be. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed.